Inspector Mallon was under a great deal of pressure to find the men behind the assassinations of Frederick Cavendish and Thomas Burke. In exchange court, the Tuesday after the killings, Mallon told French journalist Frederick Moir Boussy that he knew who drove the assassin's car and led him into an inner room where Michael Kavanagh sat beside the fire. Mallon gave Boussy permission to report on this fact, but made him promise not to reveal the inspector as his source. He detained Kavanagh without charge, though knowing he had the right man. He suspected the rest of the Invincibles knew Kavanagh had been taken in and would be looking to see if he was brought before a magistrate. Legally, Mallon was bound to bring prisoners before a magistrate within 24 hours. Not appearing in front of the magistrate would indicate to any watching parties that Kavanagh had turned informer. Mallon was hoping that by pretending to turn Kavanagh, some other guilty party would scramble to spill the beans and save themselves too. It didn't work. Kavanagh didn't say anything. No one else came forward. Mallon was back to square one. Mallon's failure to coax in more invincibles using Kavna as bait would fail, but not deter him. He had been aware of Carey and Brady back in 1881 and tried to persuade his superiors to intern them then. In a cruel twist of fate, it had been Burke who largely refused the request, stating, These men may talk this and that, but they have not the courage of their words. James Mullet, one of the original four invincibles, had been in jail since March on charges of the murder of Bernard Bailey. Mallon used Mullet's eagerness to leave the confines of Kilmainham, along with his genuine condemnation of the assassination, to pry information from him. Mullet confirmed Carey and Curley among some of the men behind the Invincibles group, earning himself release from prison but refusing to appear in court as an approver. Mullet wasn't to know that he was due to be released from the jail anyway but the authorities felt it wise not to divulge this crucial piece of information. Not long after the Phoenix Park incident, another murder took place. Not a political one, but helpful for Mallon all the same in his endeavours to lock his suspects up. John Kenny, the man who Mallon was due to meet in the Phoenix Park on May 6th, and who tore past his house right after the assassinations, was himself murdered. On July 4th, 1882, Joseph Poole, whose membership with the Invincibles is disputed, was drinking with John Kenny. Michal O'Dwivlin, who has published a book on Joe Poole via Kilmainham Tales, describes Poole's movement with Kenny that night. He's with um, John Kenny. They're drinking. Just after Dublin Castle, probably just after Dublin Castle, I think, drinking. Um, because he bought a ticket for a lottery there. They, again, like in 1916 or thereabouts, where the lottery's for guns, uh, he, this is for arms, for the money to go to the cause. And then they went off. He went back down towards several place where Kenny lived, went into Kenny's house. They opened a bottle of whiskey and they drank it. They sat and talked for about half an hour and then Poole rose, ready to leave. John Kenny stood with him gave the remainder of his whiskey to another acquaintance and left with Poole. According to Mrs. Kenny, her husband offered to walk with Poole on account of the labyrinth of narrow lanes around the house, which can confuse a sober person in the light of day, let alone the condition Poole was likely in now. Kenny and Poole left. 
So you walk to them to the corner. You can imagine the two of them carousing down the street, sort of, you know, I don't care how good a drink they were after a bottle of whiskey between the two of them. On top of everything else, they would have been quite merry. Get down to the corner, they turn around, there's a railway bridge there. They walk under it, next to this group of people come out and they attack them. Now what happened is confusing. Joe runs away, but Kenny is left dead. A witness wrote a letter to the Freeman's journal describing what he found when he heard the attack and rushed to the scene. By the dim light of the gas, I observed wounds about his head and neck, and I believe from the bloody state of his inside clothing, he had also been wounded in the chest. There was a large pool of blood about a yard from the deceased's feet near the roadway. He seemed to have been shot first at that spot, and then to have had a struggle and fallen back on the asphalt where he died. The shots which I heard discharged were four. The first was dull or muffled, as if discharged in close contact with the body, or as if fired at a greater distance than the succeeding shots, which were louder and seemingly timed. It would be alleged that Joe Poole enticed Kenny to that location, but did it add up? Seems a very strange way of doing so. <laughs> you know, I'm off, see you later, I'll come with you. You know, who's enticing who? This, you know. The other story is that Kenny was in on the plot and that he brought uh, Joe up. He was wanting to make sure Joe walked the right way. But in the dark, they got the wrong man. Now, Kenny was an informer. We know that. The allegation is he was killed because he was an informer, whereas Joe Poole says the attack, the attack was on him because of the split in the organization. There's another story that Kenny uh, was a womanizer and had slept with someone else's daughter and um, that this was part of the reason for the attack. Whatever it was, um, he, you've, you've got to pick which side you, you, you believe. And I tend to believe Joe Poole here that the attack was on him. Was Poole the actual target that night with Kenny getting caught in the crossfire? Who carried out the attack? Was it the Invincibles? A Fenian Vigilance Committee? A curious passage in Boosie's Recollections refers to a later conversation between Dr. Webb QC and Richard Adams, both who will appear again later in the story. Adams refers to Kenny being in Glasnevin Cemetery, and when Webb asks how he got there, Adams replies, We shot him, Doctor. A strange comment to make. Was it bravado? A misunderstanding? A slip of the tongue? The death of Kenny remains a mystery to this day, though a man would definitely go down for it. When police find out that Joe Poole, already on their radar, was the last man seen with Kenny, they pick him up. It transpires that two other men they're interested in also drank with Kenny that day, Thomas Caffrey and Daniel Curley. They are now both arrested. James Carey visits Daniel Curley, jackpot. The police take advantage of holding him on suspicion as well. Kenny would be useful to Mallon, even in death. Carey, Curley and Caffrey would be held in prison until September that year, when they were released for lack of evidence. The Suspects Act would lapse without renewal. They could not be held any longer without a formal charge being brought against them. Carey took full advantage of his incarceration. Nationalists loved people who were locked up for the cause. His popularity soared. He was successfully elected as town councillor. 
the Invincibles, as far as can be known, were for now staying under the radar. But in November that year, another attack brought the group back to Malin's attention. In August 1882, Francis Hines was found guilty of the murder of a County Clare man and sentenced to death on virtually no valid evidence. The jury had been stacked with Protestant jurors, despite having an available panel of Catholics. During the trial, the jury were put up in the Imperial Hotel and proceeded to get drunk and rowdy. Their behaviour was reported on in the Freeman's Journal via a letter. Judge Lawson fined the editor of the paper, Edmund Dwyer Gray, a former Lord Mayor and the present High Sheriff of Dublin, £500, and sentenced him to three months in prison. There was uproar. Judge Lawson had earned himself the position of one of the most hated men in Ireland. The Invincibles turned their sights on him, their next target. On November 11th, the group made their move, this time electing Patrick Delaney to dispose of the judge. We'll note here that Patrick Delaney had a brother, also involved in the group, called Daniel Delaney. Over the course of our research, it became clear that there's often confusion surrounding which brother did what, when and where. Papers of the day sometimes confuse matters further by referencing a Peter Delaney when checked for clarification. Both brothers would be given a chance to prove their loyalty to the group, starting with Patrick. As Judge Lawson, escorted by bodyguards, made his way from his house to a dinner on the other side of the city, Patrick Delaney made his move, though it was not the move that the Invincibles expected him to make. A daring attempt to assassinate Mr Justice Lawson was made on Saturday evening, and happily frustrated. The would-be perpetrator of the crime was caught in the very act, with his hand upon a loaded revolver. Delaney advanced on Lawson's group, moving erratically. He bumped into one of the guards trailing Lawson at a distance, and mumbled something to the effect of It's alright. You know me. Before revealing the revolver in his pocket. There was something more than a suspicion that he had purposely failed in the task imposed on him, for he knew that two detectives were following the judge. When he went down Nassau Street, he actually knocked against one of their arms, and by other means attracted their attention, just before pulling out his revolver and presenting it to the judge. Whether drunkenly misidentifying the guard as someone he knew, or deliberately trying to get out of the assassination attempt before he was in it much further, Delaney was jumped upon and restrained. Though not yet connected to the gang involved in the Phoenix Park attack, Delaney was in custody. It was not the only time Malin would encounter a Delaney brother. Daniel Delaney had at some point allegedly been designated the task of taking out Inspector Malin. In Boosie's recollections, an anecdote regarding this attempt is described. Malin was working in his office at a standing desk, a man far ahead of his time. He had a stool available, but rarely used it. On this day, Malin rang his office bell and summoned Inspector Simmons. Malin asked Simmons to fetch Delaney for him at four o'clock that evening on a personal matter, as quietly as possible. Delaney, likely anxious about this request, nevertheless chose not to refuse Simmons and Malin and showed up at the requested time. He was on edge, literally. He sat on a half-inch corner of the chair in Malin's office, running his hat through his hands at great speed. The description of him in Boosie's book brings to mind the image of a scheming back-alley minion 
small, wizened, forbidding-visaged individual. He had dirty, carroty hair and deep-set, ferrety grey eyes and a startled, frightened expression. It gets worse from there. Would such a description have been so forthcoming if the man had been of a higher class or no criminal record? Nevertheless, here he sits, in front of the very policeman he had been assigned to kill. Malin lets him stew for a bit on the edge of his chair. It's hard to imagine what was running through Delaney's head until Malin turns his attention from his desk and greets his guest. Daniel, how are you and how are you getting on these times? Delaney replies that all things are quite well, that he was working very hard for an honest living. And how's your poor old mother, Dan? And the girls, Mary and Betty? Well and happy, I hope? They're fine too, Delaney said. Indeed, Dan. I am as interested in your welfare as I am sure you are anxious for mine. And I thought you'd be glad of an occasion to ask me how I am. As I am of the opportunity of observing for myself that you are in the enjoyment of robust health, Daniel. Delaney twists, squirms, cringes, objects the Malins hauling him down there. The sight of him heading up exchange court would be the end of him, he complains. Well, well, don't mind, Dan. I'll not keep you long. But tell me, Daniel, you know my habits pretty well now, don't you? And Delaney starts to cop as to why he was there. Malin continues. Well, Dan, I want you to listen very attentively to what I am going to say, so that there shall be no mistake about it. On Friday next, that will be the day after tomorrow. I shall leave my office here at exactly six by that clock. Malin was referring to the clock in his office that was regulated according to the town hall clock. I shall walk down the court, cross the road, and proceed slowly through Parliament Street. I say slowly because, as you know, I never hurry. Hurrying sets up palpitation, Dan, which isn't good for a weak heart. Then I shall turn to the left and go down the quay and cross the river by the Eden Bridge. I shall get to the park gates at about twenty minutes past the hour. That will enable me to reach the Goff Monument as near as possible at twenty-three minutes past six. Then, if all goes well... I intend taking the road which goes round by the zoological gardens and so on to the North Circular Road and to the house where I live. You know where I live, Dan, don't you? How should I know where you live, sir? Delaney protests, knowing his plans to kill Malin are upset. Malin advances on him, places a hand on each shoulder and holds him so he is obliged to look in his face. Don't you be within two miles of the Goff Monument at 23 minutes past six on Friday next, as ye value your soul. You understand me? Get out of my office. And with that, he turns Delaney around and kicks him out of his office. Allegedly, he hadn't raised his voice once. We can't know if this event is true, or if it happened exactly as was written in the recollections. 
but it's entertaining and from all accounts seems to portray the attitude Malin had towards the criminals he kept watch over. Whatever actually occurred, Malin would survive Friday, his walk home on the disclosed route unhindered. He would evade another attempt in later days, this time from Joe Brady. Brady, who had been hauled in for questioning with Malin a couple of times, would decide that the best thing to be done would be to dispose of the inspector altogether. One morning, due to present himself to Malin at Exchange Court, Brady strolled up from Dame Street, hands in his pockets, the left one on the handle of a knife. Standing not six feet from his office was Malin. Spotting Brady, he called out, telling him he had opted to interview someone else that morning and that he could run off and play. At these last few words, he threw something to Brady, a half-crown coin. Brady was left-handed. His left hand came out of his pocket and caught the coin. He thanked the inspector and departed. Later, Brady would tell Malin that the genial way he greeted him and tossed him the coin changed his mind that day about killing him. He hadn't the heart to hurt him at that moment. What Brady didn't know was that Malin had his hand in his right pocket on a gun and had Brady's left hand re-entered his pocket for the handle of the knife, he would have been shot dead on the spot. Despite the setback with Judge Lawson, the Invincibles quickly moved on to another target. Dennis Field was a member of a jury that had found a man guilty of murder in Letterfrack. Field was seen to be passing messages to and from the Crown solicitor, and it was assumed that he was asking advice on the verdict along with another juror, William Barrett. On November 27th, the attack on Field commenced. Brady and Kelly resumed their roles as assassins. They were accompanied by Daniel Curley, Lawrence Hanlon and Daniel Delaney. Following Field home from work, they make their move as he approaches the door of his home on Frederick Street. Brady grasps Field by the shoulder and Kelly delivers several stabs with a hidden knife. Again, Brady yells, You You villain! as the attack takes place. Flung against the railings, Field holds up his umbrella to protect himself. He stabbed several times in the process. Terrified and stunned bystanders do nothing but watch in horror as Field falls to the ground outside his door, motionless. Brady, Kelly and the others flee immediately, jumping onto Michael Kavanagh's waiting cab. Some bystanders, recovered somewhat from the initial shock, begin to give chase. They hear a cry from the cab ordering the driver to drive away for heaven's sake as fast as you can. Determined members of the public follow Kavanagh and his party as far as they can. If they can't stop them, they hope at least to get a good look at their faces. Their efforts to give chase last until the group arrive at Synod Place, not far from the attack. Back on the ground in front of his house in Frederick Street, Dennis Field, bloodied, but until now pretending to be dead, starts to drag himself back towards his door. In the next episode, Connections and Mind Games. The Invincibles Park Assassins is written and produced by Roisin Jones. Narration by Jason Coburn and Marianne O'Rourke. Music for the series is composed by John Kelleher. Our guest historians are Miholo Dwivlin, Felix Larkin and Donald McCracken. Actors in this episode are Oshin DeLonga, MJ Sullivan, 
Paul Butler Lennox, Morgan C. Jones. Artwork for the series is by Tonya King and can be viewed on Facebook and Instagram forward slash The Invincibles Podcast and Twitter forward slash Park Assassins. Follow us for special extras and future updates. <laughs>